Hi, my name is Vuki Vyasinovich, and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production by Neural, an agency that helps both brands and talent tell their story. To learn more, just visit neural.com. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My guest this week, Vuki. Vuki? Vuki. Uh, what's uh, what's the most ridiculous pronunciation of your your name that you've gotten? Oh, I mean, like probably on a weekly basis, my coffee cup at a, a takeaway coffee place says Vicky. Um, Vicky. Uh, Vicky, Jesus. yeah. And I often, uh, oh, I mean, I get every every imaginable uh, concoction of a name, but I, I've uh, many, many years ago stopped stressing about it. Yeah, I, I feel the same. I mean, last names are shock, shocking. Mine is... Michaelides, I often get um, Michaelides. Michaelides is like a common one that I get. Michaelides, yeah. Um, I guess it's always just like people just don't get the um, the syntax sometimes or the the sort of pronunciation of the the letters. We were having this chat before about the Y in a lot of Balkan languages being like a Y. Sorry, yep. the J being a Y rather. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, it's always interesting to see like the unique spins that people will take on it. Um, sure, and yeah, a lot of you find a lot of people when they migrate, they they do change their um, oh yeah, they just understand. changing the spelling of their surname to make it easier. And I guess my parents never did it, and it's weird. You kind of <laughs> get to your twenties, and the thought of bothering to change something like that is like, yeah, whatever, I can't be bothered. But you see a lot more in European migrants to America. It seems like you know there's some famous basketball coaches for example in the nba like tony popovich and they and they always change their surname to make it easier to um or not always but often change their surname to make it easier to read in their new home country which uh, we never did so just you know a constant difficulty but but that's a it's a not a bad one well it's funny you mentioned that because i just had this guy reach out from the um the cypriot community of melbourne they're doing this thing on my grandpa and i i didn't actually know but a lot of greek cypriots changed their last name to es instead of IS and it's this thing apparently of anglicizing it and yep. I had no idea. I just assumed that that's how it was spelt. Yeah. So, um, you know, he taught me something that day, I guess. Very um, cool. so CEO and founder of Sling and Stone, it was, I know we were chatting over email and you're saying, um, rebranded obviously from click PR, but it was amazing to still see and shows how long you've been in this space. Now there was an old piece on umbrella from, probably your first campaign for Kogan. Yep. I don't know if you've seen, like you can remember the video, but it was very, I mean, we were doing a lot. We were doing a lot of poking and prodding of the Goliaths of the industry, especially um, Jerry Harvey and Harvey Norman. So it might've been something along those lines, (laughs) but that's definitely how the challenger brand spirit of Sling and Stone got started was, you know, I got the chance to work with Kogan.com and Ruslan Kogan and it was, a lot of fun, but it was also highly effective. And that, that, um, that joy and that passion was really stoked in those early days and it's flourished in, in our current environment. But yeah, we were, we were doing a lot of, um, pretty, you know, like aggressive challenger brand marketing. Then it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's good when you're given remit to do that sort of stuff though. That's the most exciting thing because like as a naturally cynical, uh, smart, person myself being in the media business, I quite like that. Um, that avert stuff is always quite fun. It is fun. Um, 
there's always and and even when there's like jokes or or kind of fun stuff there's you know as long as there's if there's a kernel of truth in that which there often is then that's when you find it the most effective um but yeah we had we had a lot of fun back then and i i did run into jerry harvey a few quite a few years later at an event and um my then fiance now wife um you know, introduced me to him and, uh, he looked at her and said, stay away from him, um, as a joke, but, but he, um, he, he definitely respected, you know, like he can't, he's cut from the same cloth and he respected the, um, the kind of fun we were having. Yeah. He gets it. I think he gets it. Um, tell me about the earliest memory of your childhood. One of the earliest, um, memories that has stuck with me. I mean, there's, there's silly ones like playing Nintendo with my dad, but putting that, you know, like learning how to ride a bike. Um, but, but a really interesting early one was my dad um, moved to Australia with a, a great job um, from Europe and, um, and that job was lost and, and it was a really tough time because the country we were from, then Yugoslavia, now Serbia was going through a pretty horrible war and we couldn't go back. And um, so we stayed in Australia and it was at a time when... Um, you know, the government was a bit more welcoming of, of that situation. So we stayed here um, and he ended up driving a taxi to keep, you know, keep our family going through all that. And it was a, it was a big change from what he had been doing his whole life um, working in the finance community and the, the kind of caliber of the job he had. So it was a big change for him. Anyway, he was driving a cab and he was, you know, doing great work. He ended up driving a taxi for over 30 years. So um, wow. I'm really proud of the sacrifices he made and what he did to give us a chance at a life here. But anyway, what the, the memory and what I remember is him tell, like he was cleaning his taxi one day and he said, um, he's like, if you help me clean it, you can, um, you can keep whatever passengers have, have dropped in the seats. It was, you know, coins here and there. So I helped him clean the cab and, um, and there was, I probably added up to three or $4 of, of like silver and gold coins, just, just beneath that crack in the, in the back seats. Um, it felt like I had won the lottery. Like I, (laughs) I was, you know, like I've never been, I've never had a happier, prouder moment, like financially speaking, even than that moment when I had a few bucks from cleaning the cab. And I think I went and bought some NBA cards or something like that. It was the, would have been the like, early 90s late 80s i don't know it was a while ago <laughs> how old were you at the time i was a kid i don't remember i was like five, five something okay. like that five or six i mean i have some early memories but that was yeah that was that was a really point i i i think the reason i bring that up is it like it's probably not my very earliest memory but it is an early one that definitely um one that stuck with me for a while in terms of like my attitude to money um and having to earn it and mm. um and one that I didn't appreciate until many years later, how just how much it kind of stuck with me. Yeah. And the, the fortitude is, I guess it's interesting that you had the fortitude not to go spend that money on sweets. Cause that's what I would have done at that age. And sure. Yeah. I know. But also like looking at, I think there's a bit of a weird market at the moment in, in like old NBA yeah. cards. It seems to be going a bit nuts. So I probably should have kept them. I definitely didn't keep them. Um, if I'd kept them, I'd probably be sitting on a gold mine, but um, such Did as you- life. Did you ever get into Pokemon cards? No, I was playing Magic the Gathering, so there was like a it was a Magic uh, card kind of era, but no, no, no other cards. That's so funny because I yeah that I've been paying attention to this sort of this card game that's been going on, and Pokemon's probably the biggest one because I guess in our generation, uh, that sort of X Y generation, 
you've got this crossover in Pokemon and I remember distinctly having some very good cards and I probably was like 14 at the time. We'd moved suburbs and I wanted some money. I don't know what I was buying. I cu- couldn't tell you what I bought with the money, but I went to the local card store and sold like secondhand, like a Charizard and all these other crazy cards at the time. And, you know, you could make an argument that, hey, they probably had marks or whatever and they weren't in the special cases that people get yeah. them in now. But to know that I sold that for like 50 bucks and thought I was like rich <laughs> is quite is quite funny, but yeah. a, va- a valuable lesson in hindsight. Yeah, um, hold, on to, hold on to valuable things. <laughs> so do you think looking back at your dad and, and your parents in that time, the fact that your dad stuck with the job as a taxi driver, do you think it really just instilled this hard work element in particular? Have, like, Yeah. I mean, I haven't thought about it until you asked the question, but he was there for a long time. You know, he did it for more than 30 years and, and, you know, like not many people would describe a taxi driver as entrepreneurial, but you know, like he's taking a risk. You often have to buy or rent a license for a big amount of money. These aren't back in the, this is pre Uber obviously. And there were no, um, you know, there is an outlay and, and you are taking some risk and you are having to go out and earn every, every ride. Like you're having to, this is well before smartphones or even mobile phones. So you're having to figure out somehow where you will wait. Like there's a big difference between going to the airport every day and just sticking with airport rides versus going in certain suburbs and getting to know them better. And like, there's a, there's a lot there. And and I think, you know, in terms of now I'm running Slingstone 10 years in and um, and I feel like I'm just getting started. So I think there may, may be something in terms of longevity of commitment to uh, a craft or a cause or a purpose that has stuck with me for sure that I think, you know, is playing out in in how I'm running and scaling and growing Slingstone. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how those things in hindsight often impact you and the way they indirectly impact you. I just remember sitting in my dad's factory as a kid um, and I still get little things to this day, like the smell of paper is yep. um, something I get like freshly printed paper is something I get real nostalgia for. What factory um, was it? It was a printing, like he was a printer. So, cool. and he still, he still is imprinting to this day. So that business has been around since like, it's, it's pretty remarkable when I think about it. I think uh, often my siblings and I forget that, you know, he started this business in amongst you know, what was, I don't know if you'd consider it a depression, but it was definitely a recession here in Victoria, a very severe one. And his business with his brother went broke. He just had me. And so he would work and sell print during the day and then print it at night to like three, 4am and then sleep for five hours and then do it all over again. And he did that for two years until he had his own premise, his own machine, et cetera. And, you know, yeah. now you're looking at a business. So I think at its peak, it would have had a hundred staff or something like that. Um, so it's, yeah. And you don't really appreciate that as a kid, particularly not as a teenager. No. And I think, you know, we, we have it pretty good now with the ease, comparative ease with which we can start businesses. And we, we probably don't easy. realize, we don't realize how good we all have it and how much we, I think, should appreciate the, the parents and the grandparents and the, like the, the generations prior that paved the way for us in this regard, uh, because they had 
they had to put up with a lot more and, and a lot more grit. And, and in those long hours, they couldn't stay in touch with family or friends while they were doing that. You know, they no. probably had more focus, but they couldn't, they couldn't FaceTime their kids before bedtime, you know, like it was, it would have yeah. been really bloody hard. Um, I've actually been funnily enough, you can confirm or deny this, but I've, um, I've, um, been looking around at like the world around us these past nine months and thinking whoever, whoever is uh, printing stickers and signs right now must be doing extremely well because there's just a flurry of them everywhere. I don't know. So I don't know if your dad's factory is doing stickers, but, um, <laughs> he doesn't mind he, in that being in that business. He doesn't do stickers, but, um, yeah, I know what you mean. I've, I've seen that sort of stuff everywhere, obviously because of, um, COVID and whatnot. Um, yeah. but yeah, I, I would agree. It's, it's funny you mentioned that connection element. It is really hard. Like I remember, I so remember as a kid, never seeing dad, like he, he would always come home at like 11 PM for the first couple of years of my life. And it wasn't until I was like, maybe it was like eight ish that that new routine started where he'd be home every night at 7 PM. And I'd know because he'd always be home before Seinfeld. <laughs> and we watch Seinfeld together nice. and like all the jokes would just go over my head, but he'd just be like cackling with laughter, which made yep. it extra special, uh, rewatching Seinfeld, um, during the lockdown. Yeah. Um, so you attended Fort street high school. You did your BA media comms at Sydney uni. Yep. Why media? I went into university wanting to be a journalist. Um, I loved writing and telling stories and journalism was like, you know, probably the premier way of, of telling good stories. So I went into university to do that. Um, it turned out to be in the early to mid 2000s, not a great time to get into the journalism game. So there was a bit of hesitancy and pessimism, weirdly, in the degree, uh, in the, you know, even the teachers, but also the, you know, the students in the degree, in the course I did around getting into journalism. It was, there was a lot of um, unease around it. So I think everyone was kind of keeping half an eye out on on what other tangential areas there were. And for me, I always had a, a bit of a commercial bent, a bit more of a commercial bent than I think you kind of mm. get in journalism, at least for many years until you um, start your own media empire or uh, move up the ranks. And um, and that goes back to like, I found the other day, I found my mom gave me a box of old things that I'd left at her house. And, and I found in there among all the school reports, I found a, a sheet that said it was like a quasi invoice, but like a letter from someone that I had apparently made a website for when I was 16. It was like, thank you so much for, um, the website you made for us. Um, it's really good. This is like in the nineties. Um, you know, for a, an art, art, like company of some sort, please find enclosed your check for $200. Whoa. And I send it around to some friends right now that, um, that run web design agencies. And I was like, do you think that was underquoting a little bit? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so like I did like, you know, little stuff like that. And I had a bit more of a commercial bent than I think I was going to find in journalism. And there was, uh, in my course, it was quite uh, varied and we had a public relations um, section of that and the kind of combination of storytelling along with commercial outcomes and benefits for, for clients um, really struck a chord with me and that, you know, sent me on my journey. Mm. Yeah. I think if you, if you, you know, if you're going around up around an environment where you're digging for those coins in the seats of a taxi, I think it's going to have some impact. There's going to be some hustle that, uh, is going to drive you in some way. So yep. I know you got your first taste of PR. I think um, 
I was, I read a few different articles, but one of them mentioned that you may have even left uni before you finished, but I know you started at PPR, who was a former client of mine years ago. Um, we didn't cross paths. I think I was working for the company in like 2012 or something like that. And you may have yep. already gone by then, but it was a big PR firm at the time. Yep. Very big, yep. probably the biggest in Australia. Um, I know you then became comms manager at Kogan. Um, I was just curious when you were, when you were working in that space as an employee, what was sort of the most obvious thing or highlight to you that not many people noticed when you were working in the space? So um, uh, just to clarify one point, yes, I did. Um, I, I started my like almost very close to full-time role. I started out as an intern and then had basically a full-time role while doing university. And I had a PR course at uni in like my second to final year. And I was already working at the agency. And I, for one of the assignments, I, you know, like it was, it was a trying to emulate a real world PR scenario. And I, I had obviously brought in elements of what was working in the real world for one of my actual clients and gotten a really shit mark for the assignment, like a credit, like a low credit. And I thought like 60 something, I, just, I saw it the other day, it was like a 63 or 65 or something along those lines. And I saw it and, I, and that, that was this weird moment for me of like, oh, this like this kind of divide between academia and the real world and yeah. something that is actually working in the real world. And I've taken that direct, like stripping confidential information, but like, use that knowledge and what was really working as, as kind of the basis of this assignment. Um, so that for me was a pretty pivotal moment. And from that point, honestly, the final year of uni, I didn't go to any lectures or anything. I, I shifted some things to night classes. This is before anything was online, but um, I was able to kind of pretty much coast through the final year and work full close to full time, four and a half days a week. And basically not letting any clients on to the fact that I was this uni student who was still finishing uni. They just didn't care. And I was doing, you know, hustling and working hard and they were happy. So that was the start of my career. And then what I, what I saw, it was the biggest agency in Australia at the time. It was 350 people, I believe across almost every big city in, in the country and New Zealand. So it had serious scale. What I saw there at the time that I think others perhaps didn't see uh, and not just a PPR, but, but virtually every agency around Australia, like I scoured the market and didn't see what I was looking for, which was a lack of focus on certain types of clients. And for me, the most exciting thing was challenger brands, disruptors, um, innovative tech companies that were shaking up industries. They obviously had technology clients. There were a lot of agencies that had tech teams, but they weren't working on the type of tech disruptor that was starting to come along in the mid to late 2000s and really completely upend industries. Um, they were used to working with big tech companies over many years. And that was, that was kind of a tried and true and tested model in the PR industry, but not these young up and coming entrepreneurial disrupted companies. So there was no one there doing that kind of work. Like no yeah. one at my agency or any others really cared or wanted to care about working with those types of companies. They were small, they were like, you know, really small businesses and up and coming and, and they just didn't get it. And, and so that for me was, was a big thing. And then just the general agency model was agency goes out and wins clients and then assigns people to work on those clients. Mm. And that divide for me also was, was a bit, um, I, I thought there was a way to do that a bit better, which is ultimately you want people to care about the clients they represent every single day. But in the traditional model, people have no say in the clients they're on mm. and it leads to apathy and ultimately pretty average work in my, in my opinion. But if you build a team around a certain type of passion for us, 
it's challenger brands, disruptors, it's, you know, brands that are shaping the future. If you build a team around that passion and then also have people, have, you know, give people a, a, an option to have a say in the clients they represent day in, day out, um, that, that wasn't happening from what I could see. So that they were the kind of some of the key drivers for me striking out on my own. The, when you mentioned, um, you know, because uh, I know what you mean, you get a client and then you get assigned to this account. Yep. I'm curious then, how does that work? Is that not even an issue? You still assign people to an account at Sling and Stone, but at the end of the day, most of the clients that you have have a similar ethos. So it's not, you're not getting this mishmash of people. Definitely. Like we, you know, if you think of the funnel or whatever, right? Like we are extremely picky about our clients. Yeah. We said we very politely, but we knocked back 172 clients in 2000, in 2020, right? In just last year alone, and that's in a pandemic year when um, agencies are hurting. We were still being picky, and the reason is we'd rather be the best agency in the world for a certain type of brand than a jack of all trades for everyone. Because I just think it's and, and like that's that's being selfish. Like that's just it's. I think it's easier and more enjoyable. And you can have a better impact if you focus. And that was a big thing that I just, I, most agencies at the time were um, just trying to be all things to all people. They were sitting there and if a client came and knocking, it didn't matter who it was, they pitched for it. Yeah. Um, and that and that leads to some good short-term growth. Like we could flick that switch and do that tomorrow at Sling and Stone. Um, but I think the bet I'm making with how we're running and scaling this business um, is that down the track you're in a worse spot if you if you take that path yeah it doesn't lead to a business that is as scalable as pro, you know you your processes and whatnot become convoluted because you're just trying to be things to all people yeah. and i've i've had this process in the last year with a smaller agency you know like i would be what you were in your second year mm-hmm. of of the pr firm so it's very, very early days. And there was a brilliant quote, Dan Monheit from Hard Hat Agency, probably one of the, the big independents that I really respect. I probably, when I honestly look at the industry, the people that I like the most, or the agencies I like the most is Sling and Stone, Hard Hat, and probably uh, Alex Wood Dalton as sort of an independent creative. They're, they're the ones that we internally look up to. And That's awesome. Um, and Dan is a very good friend of mine. So very yeah. good to hear that. And also on the Kogan together. account. <laughs> yeah, works on Kogan, good friends with, with them. And um, we're going on a cycling trip together in a couple of weeks if the borders open up. So yeah, good mate and, and massively respect what he does. Um, he gave me, I, I try and catch up with Dan regularly enough um, or, you know, my partner and I will catch up with him and be uh, his, his partner be and Dan, and he gave me this quote ages ago. It was, he calls it the five A's. I don't know if you've yep. heard this. I haven't before. heard this one. So it's anything for anyone, anywhere, anytime at any price. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a problem that he's like in the first like six or seven years, that's what was happening to them. They were just doing <laughs> anything. Uh, and they do it for anyone at any price. Like they do web design, they do social, they do uh, media and so I found in the last year that we've stripped out, we've stripped out anything. So we've really honed in on what it is that we offer. We've mm-hmm. stripped out anywhere, uh, anytime, at any price. We've stripped all that out. The thing that I'm now struggling with is anyone. And so, you know, I 
I was curious, how did you as a firm, like I, I know it seems in hindsight really easy to identify it. You know, you, you realize that you, you developed or honed in on this idea of challenger brands. And uh, we could make an argument internally that those are the sort of companies that we like. But there's also something different about the way we do business versus the way that Sling Stone does business. And so we still get a lot of inbound queries, but more and more, I'm trying to get to that position of saying no to people. And actually, when I was doing your research this week, I, I, cause I, I had like 20, I've had like 20 sales meetings the last two weeks in a row. And it's just like, untenable. Nice <laughs> it is nice, but like, you know, the proposals that I have to create, I just, it's untenable. I don't know how I can, like me and my strategist can't keep up with it. Yep. And some of them I know won't convert or aren't aligned with what we want. So how does an agency or any young business like ours remove that anyone? What sort of process would you advise them on? Yeah, it sounds like you're trying, I mean, the, the, the kind of, the opposing force to Dan's five A's would be something like the five S's and getting like a specific type of work for a specific client at a specific time for a specific price. Um, and whatever else I've missed, um, <laughs> what I would, I mean, honestly, if I, I don't have a prescription for everyone, what I can share is what, what worked for us. And to some extent we got lucky and I'm, I'm fully appreciative of that. I think you make your own luck. Like you work hard, you put yourself in the right place at the right time. And, um, you can make that luck, but you know, still got lucky to, to kind of place a pretty big bet on a, on an area that grew really well. Like it mm. wasn't super clear. It wasn't super obvious to me that in 2010 choosing to work with startups and disruptive tech companies was going to 10 years later lead to us being one of the biggest independent PR agencies in Australia. Like that I didn't expect and didn't know. What I did know was that me and the early team enjoyed that kind of work. So like number one is focus on the craft and the joy around it. And it doesn't have to be a specific, a specificity around types of clients. For us, that's what worked. It might be that it's a specificity around the work. Like we only do X, but we do it mm. for anyone. Yeah. Um, or we only do this really premium or this really low price point. We can do it efficiently. Like, you know, that I'm, I'm not so like, I think specificity and focus is key, but I don't think it has to be about the clients for us. That was what it was. So it was, it was just in the early days, it was a joy and, um, satisfaction and just the fun of working with these clients that were shit stirrers, that were challenges that were ruffling feathers and we were helping them do it. Yeah, They were already doing great things, but we were kind of jumping in the ring with them and helping them take on the Goliaths of their industry. And so it was really around fun and joy and satisfaction. And I think ultimately you have to, if you're, if you're in client or customer service, you have to take some joy in, in what you do. Otherwise yeah. it's going to be an untenable grind. And then later on a few years in, we realized that it wasn't just more fun, but it was more important work that these brands were starting to really genuinely shape the future. Um, in good and bad ways. So we had to really pick the clients in, in, you know, pick the right kind of clients that were creating a better future in our eyes. But that um, the importance of it started to become apparent to us in terms of changing industries, in terms of creating indus creating new industries, in terms of improving the way we all live, work and play, like making work better, making travel better, making whatever better. And in terms of job creation and value creation, so many things, these types of companies turned out to be 
some of the most important businesses in the world today. Um, when we made that bet, I can't like, there's no sort of prescient ability that I can impart on, on you or, or your no. listeners, but, but just, just like try and hone it around joy. And ultimately that passion will lead to good things, whether it becomes massive or just like something you're really proud of. I think it's a good outcome. Yeah. And I think, I think we're getting there. I think for me over the last fortnight in particular, I've started more and more as as we get into this space, noticing what it is. And I, I you know, if, if you apply the word challenger, it's actually not, it's not marketing, maybe it's mediums, but I've noticed that the things that we really excel at are certain areas, whether it's really challenging messages just naturally as a, a shit stirrer myself, or, you know, the fact that we do a lot, I've noticing in the creative space, the, the increasing use of talent, and because of that, we've really gone deep on talent management and influencer marketing yep. um, and combining that as well with sort of some of the production we do is different. We do a lot of podcast production for people. Yep. We do a lot of video that's not your standard corporate video. It's sort of uh, quite different, whether it's slow-mo, 100 frames per second type stuff or something like that. Cool. So, yeah, it, it's... <laughs> That's the, this is the fun part of being in business, right? Is working all that out. Figuring that out, placing the right bets. It's kind of in some ways, it's a, it's a very long game of, of gambling. Um, and yeah, you, if you make those right bets, I think, and, and go hard on that. And the trick is, um, the easy part is figuring that out, actually. I think the hard part is when opportunities come knocking. Very that, hard. Uh, that fit in those five A's bucket that you talked about yeah um and and you say no that's the hard part because you're saying no to short-term cash flow um, yeah. in the belief the belief that i share personally that long term it'll work out um but having that specificity and focus the, the kind of hardest part is walking the walk in those moments yeah and it's it's interesting because you know i didn't think about it till you mentioned it like who you've knocked back and i think about who we've started to knock back there's a, like a problem in uh, there's like scarcity is a brilliant marketing tool. Like Dan will probably talk about scarcity for days. Like he could talk about it all day. Yep. Um, and I wonder whether you've ever considered utilizing that as part of your, you know, whether it's on your website, whatever it may be talking about that fact that this year we've knocked back 120 people. I've yeah. told you that in the past, I think it's kind of verging on arrogant. Like we try and um, <laughs> we try and be, you know, like, humble about it where possible, but also we definitely do not take this situation and this position we are in for granted. Like we're really proud of it. We think we've earned it, um, but we have to continue to earn it every day. So to put it out there like that feels like you know jinxing it a bit. Um, but I think um, certainly something to be proud of, but we do it with like politeness and, you know, scarcity is real. Like we have, we only have, we have, we've grown to 60 people. So there's a lot of us, but it's still a finite amount of time that we have. Um, so we can't take on everything that comes our way. You. Yes, you. Are you intrigued by this episode? If so, go to our footer on the website, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com, neural.com. We're going to give you an insight each week. It's going to be on business, marketing, or a topic that we covered in the episode at all. We'd love your support and it would help us in developing the intellect around this series. But without uh, going on too much longer, let's get back into this episode. 
In the first two years of identifying this focus, what were the high and low points, do you think? They're the same. Um, the, the low and the high points are saying no to a substantial amount of revenue from a client that you know would help you grow in the short term that would be the wrong fit for your mission or your purpose and what mm. you've like said you care about and stand for. Um, so they're low because it's like you look at it and you're like, oof, I'm a young company. Um, <laughs> that revenue would help. Well, it would really help. Like I was um, in the early days, I was, you know, skimping on it. Like we started this business with nothing. And so we were being very, very frugal. So, you know, that money would have helped. Um, mm. It's a low point. It's also on reflection, a high point because it sets the culture and the DNA and like what is flowing through the blood of the agency um, years later. So they're kind of both the low and the high point. Um, something, you know, low at the time, maybe high points when you reflect on it. When you started to hone in on this, this focus of challenger brands, people always say the first sale is hardest, but I would actually argue that the repeat sale is the hardest you know, getting to that second and third sale is actually harder, I think, than the first. Because oftentimes the first is a, someone you know quite well. Yeah. Um, in this case, you were quite lucky. You had Kogan as one of your foundational clients in the early days, someone who bet on you as a business and saw that you were quite hungry. How did you scale the brand of Sling and Stone? You know, was it as simple as running basic marketing ads or was it a word of mouth thing that gradually developed into this blazing fire over time that people started talking to you about rather than you talking to them about? Yeah. The, the latter, um, super grateful and, and proud and thankful for the fact that it's all been word of mouth. So almost entirely, you know, we have 60 clients today. I think, uh, maybe three of them we've proactively chased. So, um, they're all inbound and that is a great position to be in. It means we need to get better at, um, proactively chasing clients, the ones that we really want to work with, but, um, but it's a good situation to be in. And it was slow going at the start. Like the first year was glorified freelancing. It was me in, <laughs> in my bedroom in a share house in, on King That's street right. in Newtown. Like it was very, very humble. And, I have huge respect, like much more respect for, for people who are able to take this entrepreneurial jump when they are older and have more commitments and have more responsibilities and a family or a mortgage or things like that. I started this business when I was 23. Like I, I yeah. you know, blissfully naive, didn't know how to write an invoice. Like I knew PR, but I didn't know what I was doing in terms of running a business. The, the benefits are that I had zero responsibilities. I had like 200 bucks a week in rent I had to meet. Um, but honestly, beyond that, like that was, there was nothing else. So I have huge respect for people that take uh, much more of a risk and a gamble. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that I, I guess I did it at the time. Like it's kind of crazy to, to start an agency at 23, but that, um, that's worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, those early days are when you get the results uh, down a long, long way down the track. And I guess for you, you probably would have had those moments over the years. I mean, uh, there was an interesting quote that, that you had where, you know, the, the size and the growth and the scale of the business or the speed of it would have really hit you when, you know, you started walking past meeting rooms and you'd see people in meetings without you. And, uh, I love that shit too. I love knowing that like a staff member has organized something away from me and I don't even have to think about it. And it's just done. There's something very, 
I don't know, there's something very rewarding about that. 100%. I think a lot of people when they're starting and scaling businesses look at that, have that moment. Everyone has that moment and they look at it and you, you kind of in that moment make a pretty key decision mm. in your mind, which is, am I going to get annoyed about that and think, oh, why are they doing that without me? Or am I going to be happy about that? I instinctively chose the latter. And I've since then, and that was many, many years ago, but I've now very deliberately continued to choose the latter in terms of um, empowering and enabling the team to be entrepreneurial. Yes, like, you know, people should set guidelines or boundaries or even better principles behind how to make great decisions or the right decisions. But ultimately, like you need people to feel accountability and ownership and, and autonomy to some extent. Um, the, I think the business people and the entrepreneurs that, that have those moments and, and they, their instinctive reaction and then their following actions are, oh, that I should be in that room. You know, it's a different type of business. It's not, it's not me. Um, and I think it's, it can work. Like there are micromanaging CEOs who are phenomenal, but it's bloody hard and it's rarer, I think, to succeed at that, to scale and succeed in that way. It seems like then like the lever apart from selecting the right type of client for you was selecting the right type of people to work with you, particularly in this business. It's a people business. Yep. Um, I think we, you know, we've only got two staff, two full-time staff um, and the rest are sort of freelance specialists. And if I think about it, we are incredibly lucky with who we selected as individuals. And I think, some of it was intuitive at the time, but we really wanted to select people who were passionate more than having certain skill sets. So yes, they may have the basic skill sets required, but you know, our producer was actually a guy who was a fan of the show and um, reached out and seemed just genuinely passionate. Now he runs everything yeah. like from an operational point of view, obviously with our creative director looking over it and I guess I'm curious, how have you looked to implement that in the way that you hire? Are you still involved in a lot of hiring? Some hiring, but I also trust my team to hire the right people. Um, it's a tricky one, right? Because as, and, and I would say it's not just your first two hires, like your next five or six or seven will also, um, you will see the effects of that in five or 10 years time. Yeah. Like you, the, the decisions you make now, matter so much more than it seems in the moment. And you obviously understand that, but I think it's something important to, to think about in these moments. Um, people tend to scare away from structure and processes, especially in creative businesses like ours. Some people hear process and kind of, you know, it sends a shiver down their spine, but if you can create systems and structures for the repeatable boring stuff, you can open up, people's availability for creativity and strategic thinking and where possible, including in the hiring process, we get really diligent and organized and structured around certain aspects of it. Um, mm. And I think the biggest, the most important thing is you need to hire people that um, can add to your culture. The risk is um, people hire people similar to them and you can end up with this monoculture of everyone being kind of the same. Mm. That's actually not what you want. You don't want people who are the same. You want people who can row in the same direction and do it, you know, collaboratively and well, but you, you want different kinds of people who add to your culture. And that's the really important thing I think to, to get right. Speaking of uh, monocultures, I mean, before we were talking about 
operate the old operational models of former or big agencies rather i think it's been a very interesting been very interesting reading Mumbrella and the impacts on the industry. And I think I, I wonder from this year, how many new independent firms will flourish because, you know, you think of uh, look at CHE proximity and the CEO and the creative director basically split to form probably one of the, what will probably become one of the bigger independent agencies in years to come. And I wonder how much of that is going to have an impact on the industry. But you know, a lot of former big agency workers always comment about how they realize how restrictive, you know, you've mentioned hamster wheels of laborious processes, hierarchical structures, outdated technologies. How do you prevent that at Sling and Stone? Uh, constantly reminding yourself of, of how bad it can be in the wrong environment. So sometimes it's a matter of, you know, you're hiring someone from, um, from the old school parts of the industry and they come into sling and stone and, and, and things that you take for granted. I mean, even like this is, this is really bread and butter stuff. But last year we hired someone who came in and was like, Oh, I'm so glad you give us laptops instead of desktop computers. <laughs> and I looked at them and thought like, what do you mean? Like, um, where were you given a desktop computer recently? They're like, Oh, last year at my agency. Um, wow. And, you know, like there's things like that, right. That, that, um, you take for granted. Um, so sometimes it's just reminding yourself <laughs> through, um, outsiders coming in. Um, uh, but you have to constantly pay attention to it. You have to agitate and put pressure on it and not get comfortable. We've been at the forefront of innovation and excellence for our industry for many, many years. But if we take our foot off the gas pedal or stop paying attention to that, yeah, we'll like, we'll, we'll wake up and be like the, agencies we we despised in the <laughs> starting out yeah and i think i think when you're already in an ecosystem where you're working with those type of companies anyway that's going to permeate in some way into your business yeah the entrepreneurial spirit of our clients rubs off on us every single day like i don't think we would have we expanded in 2017 to new zealand 2018 to america and i don't think we would have done that if we didn't have the types of clients we have like these are globally minded, entrepreneurial, fast moving, agile businesses that it's hard not to be inspired by that and motivated by that. And being around that type of client all day, like you get, you kind of get that, that positive agitation and that desire to do something bigger. You, in the past, you've spoken in interviews about, um, there's a particular interview you spoke about how, uh, I think you were just generally commenting on the state of media and marketing. And in this case, you highlighted Nintendo and how they were blending nostalgia, innovation, and fun. And I thought I thought that was quite interesting, and I would agree. I, I would have thought that would be a couple of years ago that when um, you know Pokemon had been released, Pokemon Go rather, um, and a few other things from Nintendo were happening, which has made it, you know, for a lot more people, particularly in our generation, uh, a bit more common in the home, and. Uh, I, I was curious what, since that interview, you know, your, let's say your thesis on great marketing or good marketing, what has changed since then? Who now is doing it well? Oh, who is doing it well? I think probably, um, I mean, or what is doing well? Yeah, even? yeah. Like I think in general, speed is really critical um, and you're seeing a, an environment where, speed in marketing is more important than ever speed and agility. So, um, 
even if you take the US last week, for example, with with a lot of unrest, um, if you had big marketing campaigns scheduled to drop, then not realizing, you know, obviously the weeks and months prior when you're planning, not realizing what would happen. If you didn't have the agility, the speed and the agility to to like tweak or change or delay those plans, it hurt you. Like there were a lot of brands that launched that did things around that time that either were met with indifference because the country no and the world was, was focused on other bigger things or derision for how dare you do this at this time. This is so, this is so inappropriate. Um, and on the flip side, on the positive side, I think brands that are like tapping into culture at a really, you know, speed and agility that, that they weren't able to before due to lack of technology. Um, they're doing really, really well. One of my favorites, probably like possibly my all time favorite is, is Nike in recent years is I'm a runner myself and the way that they, have done like the, the, their product launches that have been so beautifully integrated to like real product innovation to documentaries around Elliot Kipchoge trying to, trying to, and then successfully breaking the two hour marathon and two hour barrier in the marathon with these special Nike shoes that I of course now run in and get nowhere near, (laughs) but makes me feel faster. Um, you know, uh, I think they've done a phenomenal, beautiful job of that in various ways all around the world. And I've loved seeing it. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. It's funny you mentioned that because I just I will always distinctly remember um, when I was in my uh, younger years getting into marketing, I'd always been more on the sales side. I actually studied commerce. So I was always in the finance industry on sales and marketing sort of roles. And I remember when I first found Gary Vee and he spoke about how he finds it unusual how these personal brands, or sometimes actual brands, but mainly individuals will schedule these posts and how sometimes the scheduling will clash with, I don't know, some major political slash world event. And I think it was like the first time that I saw that uh, in live action was on Twitter and it was during sort of uh, the terrorist attacks in Paris. And Mm -hmm. I just remember thinking like, holy shit, like these people look like uh, just fools. Like they look... Uh, very naive in hindsight. And so that to me really illuminated that point, that speed and agility, the ability to move quick in those moments. Um, I don't know how long you guys have been married now, but Jody Fox of Shoes and Prey is your partner. Um, my co-founder and I also, we run our business together. I think I mentioned earlier in the interview. I'm curious what she taught you about business. She taught me about the power of honing in on your craft, the way she applied herself to the product and the customer and the care and the attention to detail was something out of this world from the initial experience where you design your own shoe to the email communications you receive while it's being made to the box and the way it comes and the packaging and the design and the follow-up and everything, the craft and that, that attention to detail um, was something I've never seen before. And it's very hard to apply that in a service business in the same way. Um, but she did it in a product business in such an inspiring, beautiful way that I think both myself and a lot of other people can learn from. That's, that's good. I like that. Uh, how have you, I'm always in, intrigued as to how agency owners look at their product and craft. Because like uh, one of the things I regularly Google is craftsmanship 
in media or services and nothing ever appears for it. Nothing ever comes up. I can't find anything unless it's some niche talk on Google. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'll, I'll like, I'll be the creator of that talk uh, or like <laughs> if I'll do a Ted talk on this topic. So I'm really um, spitballing here, but I think that the craft ultimately has to come back to your motivation. And for us, if you, have your work sit as closely to commercial benefits for your clients as possible, like tangible business outcomes, whether it's a company or a cause or an individual you're helping. If you tie your self-worth or your value to helping them grow, like helping their business or their cause actually grow and achieve its objectives, I think you will find a lot more pride in your work. And ultimately that like craftsmanship will, will come out. So it's kind of looking at it the other way, but um, that's that's how I've approached it certainly over the years is not being the kind of agency where we have this like tangential weird metric for success where we're like, oh, this coverage is worth $20 million and we pat ourselves on the back yeah. and move on. Um, but But actually tying it to like helping our clients grow and helping them have an impact on the future, then we're going to be better at what we do. And yeah. it's a bit of a flywheel effect tying it to an actual result, which is a very, like, that's a common thing that a lot of, um, like I was in a sales meeting on Monday where even that was commented on by this, uh, this business. And, uh, that's always a hard thing is like matching what they want as actual tangible business outcomes versus what the industry has as standard for measuring yeah. performance, um, is always fun. Attribution is always fun. Attribution um, is hard, but also the attitude, just quickly, like the attitude to that, the hard thing about it is you have to live and die by it. And like, mm. you, you'll be surprised, like there's sad surprise moments where you told a beautiful story and you think it moved the needle and you like, you're really proud of it. And you ask the client like, Hey, what effect did this have on sales or traffic or awareness or whatever it is. Right. And it's like, Oh, not much. <laughs> and, and that's hard, but you learn from that. Right. Like yeah. you really learn from that. I've noticed there's there's a lot of talking points that you get in these interviews. There's always something about innovation, always. Or recently, there's, there's been, of course, the discussion around the 10 years. Um, I'm curious, in all these interviews that you have done, what's a question that you wish that you were asked or that you wish that people would talk to you about? I don't know. Ask me about like triathlons and cycling. That's what I, that's what I love talking about. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't. Um, let me. I might come back to you on that. I'm not sure off the top of my head what I what I wish people asked. It's a really good question. Out of interest um, on that, because I know that that puts you and Dan in the same camp. Um, like, what yeah, is fulfilling it, my request? <laughs> what What is it about uh, those things in particular? Do you guys? There's obviously the competitive component. There's the performance component. Do you guys? like actively watch marathons and triathlons and stuff like that? Um, I do because I'm weird. I don't know if he does. Um, and for the record, yes, we're competitive. And yes, I beat him at the last triathlon we did together. Um, I uh, I think it's really just about like the meditation, the meditative aspect of it for me for like endurance training is you're out there and I, I love meditation and um, they're, they're a client, but you know, like I use calm as an app and I, it's great. And, um, I love the guided and, and, you know, learn education around meditation that I get to experience, but 
but ultimate meditation for me is like being out on the road for hours and hours. <laughs> and um, I find that super calming and relaxing. And, and that's my main driver is that. Interesting. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. That is that is a strong component, the amount of time that goes past. Um, yeah. All right, let's jump into some rapid fire questions to finish things off. Uh, during COVID, I mean, I guess you're, you're in Sydney, right? So you guys didn't really have any any lockdown i've been asking we, people, a, we, we had a lockdown but probably yeah, like, yeah. you know we, we, we've had the most normality of life <laughs> than anyone here. well uh, the thing i've been asking people is what's sort of been your item of choice during the lockdown but uh does it really hit the same for someone who's been in sydney so what's sort of uh your go-to food and drink of choice at the moment? Well, my, I did actually have an item of choice, which is like we did, I set up, uh, there was a period of like some restrictions and, and I had an indoor bike. So um, I, I loaded up Zwift again, flagging it's a client, but Zwift is this incredible app where you, you sync your indoor trainer and your bike to it and it recreates yourself on the screen in a virtual world cycling with other people, some who yeah. you know, some who are strangers and there's races and training and it's, it's awesome. Like it, it, makes indoor training so fun. Um, so that was my, you know, March, April, May ish item of choice. Um, in terms of food and drink, probably like a lot of people this time of year, I'm trying to be a bit healthier. I'm training for an Ironman uh, later this year. So my wife is helping me, um, eat a bit healthier, which has been, you know, like I'm not the healthiest eater in the world. So trying to do whole 30, um, and, and eat a bit better. I'm also drinking non-alcoholic beer for the first time in my life, which I, I, you know, was, is much, much better than it used to be. Um, which one, which beer of choice? Well, a good mate of mine, um, Andy Miller has created this craft, no alcohol beer called heaps normal. Okay. Check it out. Blind taste test you or anyone with, with another like cool craft beer promise you, you won't realize it's not alcoholic. It tastes great. And it is awesome. So I'm loving it this summer. It's funny you mention that because we, I was on a pitch uh, in the middle of a year just before the lockdown came through again. It was so fucking funny because the first meeting I had with the client, again, it's sort of a craft beer, uh, non-alcoholic version. It was in partnership at the time uh, with a local brewer in Melbourne, but this was a company that actually owned the beer. So they were obviously contracting out the production to this brewery and i remember i had a shoot in armadale in melbourne and i walked around the corner to a cafe to meet this prospective client and he just cracks out these beers and like the staff were just like what are you doing like it's 10 a.m yeah it's 10 a.m and like not only can you not be drinking this here like what what is this and we tried to explain to them like this is non-alcoholic beer so like, you know, it's fine. Do you want to try some? Here's the glass. And then I just remember walking around Armadale with a few like tasters for staff, like for our strategists and whatnot, who were going to taste it. And, um, just the dirty looks that I got. <laughs> it was hilarious. But <laughs> I would agree with normalize that. in recent years, in, in upcoming years, but it's fantastic. Much better than it used to be when we were younger. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, books, books of choice. What would you recommend to the audience of late? I look, I, has spent too many years reading too many business books and we probably all love them and it feels good reading them. But, um, I, I think to some extent they often end up saying the same thing. And so I tried to venture outside that and read a lot more fiction. I mean, I, f I did really love reading about a year or so ago, um, the Walter Isaacson biography on Leonardo da Vinci, Vinci. which just yeah. like, brilliant he wrote the book on steve jobs and many others but his book on da vinci is awesome just really really fun and i think 
two years ago, 2019, I believe, was the 500th year, 500th anniversary of Da Vinci's birth or death. Um, so it was like quite timely and a really good read. Um, but through lockdown in 2020 and now venturing, uh, kind of crossing over into 2021, I've been reading a lot more science fiction and just kind of loving the um, the Foundation and the Dune series. So um, okay. the F- Foundation series has a TV show coming out. Um, I saw being that. Produced- produced by Apple coming out this year. And June has a, a brilliant new movie um, coming out. It was meant to come out late last year, but it's delayed to this year. Um, and that, that series is phenomenal. They're both like, you know, big, heavy series of, you know, six, seven plus books on um, foundations, nine books, I think. Um, but we're loving, you know, we're loving that. And it's, it's a really good uh, way to read fun, enjoyable stories, but that, that have deep philosophy behind them. It's funny you mention uh, the Da Vinci book. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, I've got a funny story f- with Dan on that. I, oh, so yeah. I've read Steve Jobs. I've read Da Vinci. I've read Benjamin Frank- Franklin and the Einstein book. I've, I love Isaac Walterson. Uh, Walter Isaacson's writing. And yep. Dan had an episode on the Benjamin Franklin effect. And I was like, you know what? Uh, He's yeah. helped me out with saying recently I'm going to send him that book via Amazon. And as it turns out, even though it says on my purchase receipt that it was benjamin franklin they sent him the da vinci book i don't know how the <laughs> fuck that's possible it was a third party seller but well, I remember he, he told it. He, he did, yeah i'm sure he enjoyed it i'm sure he put it down after the first hundred pages i find i found the da vinci's the da vinci book was a bit harder to read um but it was still an exceptional book and all of isaacson's yep. books are amazing so they're they're fantastic i haven't read them all but um i will i will dig into them um is the einstein one good very, very good. Um, just fascinating to learn. Like I, I truly unpacked uh, what it is about. Like I didn't really understand relativity at all. Yep. And that book really um, explains it quite well. And also that you can do special things while you're you're working a full-time job and doing things on the side as well. The guy was uh, worked at a post office for like 10 years <laughs> before he became a lecturer. He was snubbed because, you know, he was basically Jewish. And... Um, he came up with the theory of relativity while working at the post office. Wow. I did not know that. I will, yeah. I will read it next. So it's, uh, it's an exceptional read. Um, last one for you. What seems obvious to you, but not to others? I think the value of skepticism. So like you mentioned before that you're pretty cynical. Um, I remember we, at work we did years ago, did one of those like profiling psychographic sort of things. Uh, and yeah. at the top, the very, very top of this period uh, pyramid of, overstrengths, which, um, is weaknesses, but it's, you know, like they call them over, you're, you're overly strong in this, um, was skepticism. And I can appreciate that there are situations where being skeptical is like not super endearing in social situations Yeah, where like someone says something to you and you just want to challenge you, it. you, you distrust it and you're like, you've got a furrowed brow and you just look like an asshole. Um, but, but I think that skepticism has served me well and has been a good foundational trait in our business where we are as a, as an agency, we're not, um, you know, we're not a venture capital fund. We're not investing money in the clients we work with, but we are investing the only resource we have, which is our time. So just like a VC investing in tech startups, we have to be really picky and, and choose the right ones. If we put all our time and energy into the wrong businesses, one, it won't create a better future, but two, you know, we won't survive or do well as a business. So 
Um, I think that skepticism is healthy if you can like hone it in the right way. And to me, that seems really obvious, but a lot of people just think being that skeptical is bad and it can come out in bad ways, but I think it can be super helpful. Yeah. There's pros and cons to everything. I'd be intrigued to see what your big five personality tests were results were like. Um, I've got a very, like when it comes to agreeableness, I've got very low agreeableness, but very high compassion. So I'm very skeptical. Um, I can be very disagreeable, but uh, I still have like a high level of compassion, uh, which is unusual. It's very conflicting. Um, so particularly in social settings, like I, I'm like, you'll have that sort of, you know, classic wog forehead brow, like I'm ready to fire up about anything. <laughs> I'll just, uh, me and my brother, my brother's worse than me. He'll, he'll pick us something like, is the glass, this glass that I'm looking at half full or half empty. And he'll argue with you about it for the next hour. Like that's yep. the type of family I grew up in. So you got to pick your battles though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he doesn't, he hasn't learned that still to this day um, at 26 years of age. But um, yeah. look, Vicky, thanks for doing this so much. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, they can find our website at slingstone, S-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E.com for Sling and Stone. Um, they can find me on Twitter at Vuki, V-U-K-I. Uh, or they can email me, Vuki at slingstone.com. Where are you most prominent in terms of social media? Twitter? Uh, probably LinkedIn, actually. Um, right. And so, yeah, I mean, there aren't too many bookies out there. So just, just punch in those four <laughs> letters and, and you'll find me. Um, the, yeah, but LinkedIn's probably where I'm most active. Awesome. We'll link all of that. Um, thanks once again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you do like it, please subscribe. And of course, like if you're watching the YouTube video as well. Uh, we'd really appreciate that. You can also find our clips channel in the description. For audio, if you're not already listening, you can search Uncommon on Podcast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts quite easily. For video, if you're not watching, you can search Uncommon on YouTube. And for behind the scenes takes and clips uh, on social media, then definitely check out at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But otherwise, look, thanks so much for tuning in. And until next time, thanks for listening.